Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the show covering all horror movie franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. I am your host, Mike Snoonian, and I'm trying not to lose it because I don't know the corner in my eye when I said hello, Stephen waved, which almost made me lose it right there. All right, sitting alongside me in the co-host chairs today, we have, we already spoiled it, from the Disenfranchised podcast, Mr. Stephen Foxworthy. Stephen, how are you? Hello, I'm doing very well. That's fantastic. Just, you know, waving, sitting, sipping coffee. It's a good day. Celebrating the third birthday today of the Spectre Cinema Club, turning three years old, got through the terrible twos. Um, Fun fact, I think I'm the only dad here, or the only parent here. Mm -hmm. That'd be true. People say the terrible twos, but threes are way worse. Anyway, from the Spectre Cinema Club, Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we? Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I I almost, for like, even though I'm not a parent, but as a parent, I almost, like, forgot my podcast on birthday. I, like, woke up and, like, the Twitter notification gave it to mm-hmm. me, and I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, it's the anniversary. Yeah. That's pretty neat. So, so uh, uh, I mean, I'm a fur parent, but, of course, not the, not the, not the yeah. real one. And the terrible twos with him have yeah. been real. And the fur parent of a lovely dog. Yes, sweet boy. Which we've traded stories about our pets misbehaving. I can top everyone's right now. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, you know, every day we like pack our lunches and my wife puts her like lunch bag in her work bag. And yesterday she goes to work and she goes to have lunch. It's like, oh, I'm missing lunch. I must have left it on the kitchen island. Nope. What happened is our dog saw the lunch bag in there, sniffed the chicken that was in it. Pulled out the lunch bag, dragged it to her crate, emptied the contents of the bag, managed to open the Tupperware holding the chicken in it, and also opened the bag holding the carrots and ate everything in my wife's lunch. Classic. Classic. (laughs) Amazing. We went into her crate and it was like a hoarder's nest. (laughs) Apparently she's been... She had an oven mitt in there, which were like, what the fuck are you doing with an oven mitt in here? And how did you even get up on the counter to get it? But They're cooking. They're cooking in there. <laughs> no. They got their little uh, toaster yeah. oven. Cal ate some like... suspicious sausage mm-hmm. this morning, so praying for Uh-oh. no puke later. Also joining us, the owner of a much better behaved dog than I have. <laughs> Rambo is so much better behaved. From the Losers Club and Girls on the Boys, Rachel Reeves. Rachel, how are we? Oh, I'm good. Excited to be here. Yes, Rambo's actually currently just snoozing on the chair just behind me. Lying there, <laughs> chill as can be. Not a worry where like our dog is like the shark in Jaws, <laughs> always on the prowl for food. It's amazing. Oh yeah. No, the good that yeah, Rambo, I will say he'll hop up on the counter too, but it's a good mm. excuse for me to keep my counters clean. So Excellent. it looks like I'm clean and organized, but it's really just it's just Rambo. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. And I think we're all dog owners, right? I yes. Think all of us have. Yes. So. Yeah. Okay. Max is currently in his crate. He got his stitches out last weekend, so he's doing a lot better. So. Did he snitch Aww. on somebody? <laughs> no, he uh, he had a he had to get a growth removed, so it it oh. burst and uh, oh. there was yeah there was blood everywhere. It was really yeah. Oh, fun. We don't <laughs> need to get into it, but he he couldn't stop licking <laughs> oh, it. Oh, so please do. He had like a donut on, so he mm-hmm. he got the stitches. He got the donut off. He's he's much happier. But he's he just, had the cone of shame. Yeah, but we Excellent. actually looked like an inflatable donut, like the Homer Simpson style donut that we got oh. for him. So, oh, yeah, excellent. Well, thank you for joining us for pet talk this week. <laughs> uh, and this is all my fault. I have no one to blame but myself. How dare uh, no. you? For the month of June, we are going to break the format a little bit, and you're not talking about pets the whole time. The, but the we're pets send... will be talking. That's the switch up for that yes. one. <laughs> yes, excellent. <laughs> oh, my cat will like get on the mic and just headbutt it when we do the show sometimes. But have seen it. Right. Can confirm. Yeah. But we are going to set some franchises aside uh, this month, and we're going to celebrate the master of horror himself, Mr. John Carpenter. Uh, We wanted to kind of take a dive into just like three of his iconic standalone film, like standalone-ish, I guess, films, because this one does have a sequel, uh, and talk about, you know, a little bit about his body of work, and especially that run from like the late 70s or the early 80s, and like why those films hold up so well and why they feel like so special to us as like genre fans today. So we're going to be kicking things off this week with 1981's Escape from New York, one of his more iconic movies and really the movie where Kurt Russell becomes Kurt Russell, I think it's fair to say. So before we kind of dive into the movie itself, let's kind of talk about, you know, why maybe Carpenter is so special to us, like what are you know, why he holds such like a dear place in the genre fans' hearts, and then maybe our initial impressions like the first time we saw Escape from New York and what it meant to us. So, Rachel, you hopped on board with this one with showing off like a phenomenal piece of cosplay work, uh, which with your permission we'll tweet out, I think, maybe uh, when we promote the show. But like, what does Carpenter mean to you and what is this movie specifically? Like, what place does it hold for you? I mean, well, speaking of John Carpenter, I mean, he's a, a horror master, right? He's one of the capital M masters of horror. And I also just like, as time goes on, and I've seen him like in interviews and like quotes from him, like it just, he's so grumpy. And like, I don't know, it's just so funny to me. And I love that he's just, he's not going to play the game, I guess. Like, he, he's always played by his own rules or tried to for better or worse, and that's just continued, and he just seems like a guy that he's like, no, I don't want to do that. Fuck that. Or, like, yeah, I'm going to go on tour with my son in my 60s. Yeah, why the fuck not? Mm-hmm. Sure, let's do it. You know, like, he just is so such a powerful individual and so himself, and, like, I had a friend who worked for him for several years and just those kind of stories it's like what you see like that is how he is is what i've heard from you know somebody who knows him very like closely and it's just like yeah that's how he is all the time he's playing his video games and is incredibly smart but also like not gonna bullshit you and i think that that's such i don't and i think we see that in his films as well for the most part and i mean 
there's so many great films. This, Escape from New York, being one of my personal favorites. I love everything about this film. I love the aesthetic. I loved it from the moment I saw it. And it's just continued to be one of my favorites. And whew, Kurt Russell in this film. This is some some prime cut Kurt Russell. Yes. <laughs> this is going to be a thirsty episode, I think, between, yeah, probably. <laughs> between Kurt Russell... Adrian Barbeau and Ernest Borgenine. I think this is going to be perhaps the thirstiest episode we ever mm. record here. I'm really glad you added the Borg. Yeah, yummy, absolutely, yummy Ernest. Oh yeah, yeah. I was going to yeah. say you got to rep the Borg. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, let's not. We're. I feel like we're sleeping on Harry Dean Stanton too. Like let's let's maybe not. In that little kerchief. Oh yeah. How uh-huh. do we? Uh-huh. Yep. Just makes you wonder why that. they call him the Brain. You know. Yep. Oh, oh God, <laughs> Stephen. How about yourself? Because when we said we're doing Carpenter, and like, which ones do you want to jump in on? You're like all of them. If I yeah, can. So, I, I I love Carpenter. Um, yeah. I honestly, so we've recruited you to do a watch along to Ghost of Mars in the Ward back to back for the Patreon. You have to get that time. into me by Thursday. Go anyway. Would, now that I've thrown you off track, no, would not be the first time I've done that. Um. I no, I sat down in 2020 during the depths of the pandemic, which is why where I feel like my my horror fandom was forged in fire because I I'm on record as being a fairly novice horror fan. I'm very new to the whole genre, um, and I I I just binge watch all like 20 or however many of John Carpenter's films, um, and really got an appreciation for what he does very well, um, and this is the only movie of his that he ever did a sequel to like this is clearly something that he really loves but no i absolutely loved just because he is he's a cinema nerd he loves movies and he knows how to make them very well and knows how to make them on a budget and even make the budget fit the movie um like the story he wants to tell he knows how much money it's going to take to make it um, I also love how grumpy he is, how he doesn't settle for less than what he deserves. The whole fuck you pay me attitude, um, the whole I hold out my hand and then a check appears in the hand. And if there's enough zeros on it, I do it like that. I, I fucking love that. You're like, get yours, John Carpenter. Absolutely. And the fact that all he does now is like smoke weed and play video games. Fuck yes. Get yours, John Carpenter. Absolutely. You've you've earned it. You've been working in, in, in a thankless industry for years, just quietly putting out masterpiece after masterpiece after masterpiece. Get yours, man. Get yours. Absolutely. I, I love the man. And I, I I like this movie. This is not like top five Carpenter for me, but I I think everything below like 10 for me in, in Carpenter is just Maybe even like eleven is just like really solid, amazing films. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 I appreciate most of his output, yeah. um, and so this is one I put it in. It's definitely in my top ten, but no, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. I love the world building. I lo- I'm a sucker for a good post-apocalyptic anything. Um, the idea of an entire city being a penal colony, an entire city being anything. Um, like the entire blank is a blank is very much a concept that appeals to me. Like in star Wars where the entire planet is a city. Yes. Hook that to my veins. Um, but so the, yeah, the entire city is a penal colony. Hell yes. Let's do that. I'm on board. So, and just the world building within that, I think is absolutely phenomenal. I'm, I'm, I dig this movie from top to bottom. It's really fun. Great. Devon, how about yourself? 
Yeah, I'm a I'm a big Carpenter fan. Well, I wouldn't say like big, I guess, because I still have a few on his filmography that I haven't seen. I'm actually quite a few now that I'm actually looking at it. But uh, from the ones I have seen, uh, I do love his work. Uh, he has such a confidence uh, amongst all of his works. Like even if I don't enjoy the movie, um, there's never a point where I'm like watching a Carpenter movie and going like, why is he doing this? Or like, what's the well, like what's he going for here? Like, no, you like you know what he's doing, and he's always like very just like um clearly intentioned in like the work that he does and that's something i very much appreciate and he's a very lean uh filmmaker as well you know like there's no fat on any of his films like they are all very just like you know straight to the point and uh and and you know he is you know he's every horror fan's favorite curmudgeon uncle like we we do love him for that and you know and i i thought it was kind of funny that we were doing carpenter for june for pride month and i'm like i'm like you know what i would love to hear his thoughts on this whole bud light debacle you know and like shenanigans i feel like you know his anti-establishment and stuff like i feel like he's here for he's here for the queers so like i feel like it's an odd choice for pride month but also somewhat makes sense though uh so yeah so very excited to uh, hopefully uh, hit some of these uh, blind spots that um, that I still have later on in the month and uh, uh, escape from New York uh, definitely not my favorite carpenter um, but um, you know I've I've been wanting to see uh, what people like really love about it like I like this movie I think it's really cool I think I dig it um, but uh, for I, I like all the details and stuff but for one reason or another just it doesn't all coalesce for me but I mean of course I mean I'm not crazy Kurt Russell is hot and cool and amazing in this film and um, and you know there's uh, just a, a really cool feel to this like you know idea of just like oh yeah let's make it a whole state a prison like you know who comes up with stuff like that and then where can you go from it and so like I find it very fascinating so I'm intrigued to uh, get I want to hop on on this one because I want to uh, you know you guys to to school me like what is it that you know where's the love for this one Cause I really mm-hmm. like it but I just don't love it so hopefully by the end of this episode maybe I'll be swayed Okay. Challenge so, accepted. Better or worse than Hell House 3, Devon? Oh, I mean, come on. Oh. Come on. Definitely better. Definitely How better. Dare that you, was sir. Yes. <laughs> oof, oof, oof. That when, was that was something. When when you look at your list of like carpenters that you need to catch at some point, what's one that jumps out? Like what's one you're like, "All right, this is the next one to knock off the list." I mean, I know like I'm going through Hitchcock right now and I think for me it's either like North by Northwest or Notorious. It's like the next one I got to do. North by Northwest is so good. Yeah. Uh, they Live is definitely the biggest blind spot I have. Um, yeah. Yeah. If only you guys could uh, see see my co-host faces currently. Um, yeah. That, that's the, the, the biggest blind spot that I have on his filmography. But I really want to get to uh, Prince of Darkness as well just because of all mm-hmm. the imagery that I've seen from it. I'm very excited to uh, dig into that one. Yeah. Also curious what you think of that one. Have you I, done In the Mouth of Madness yet? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Big, okay. big In the Mouth okay. of Madness fan. Big Christine fan. Uh, I'd say Christine's probably, well, aside from The Thing, because, I mean, Thing's a given. But aside from The Thing, Christine is uh, my top one right yeah. now. Okay. I feel like I've heard you say elsewhere before how much you admire Keith David, like how much you feel he's like always the coolest guy in the room like in anything so cool one of the best voices in the world like i fucking love keith david he's amazing so i think you'll really like they live like i think you'll really that's a great keith david performance he's always fantastic and 
everything I've seen them in, but I think you'll really dig them in, in They Live when you get to that one. Um, for me, everything everyone here has said, like the fuck you, pay me, that's going to stick out my hand. Like I know that's like an analogy I've used before. I like that, you know, once Carpenter burst onto the scene that he um, wasn't afraid to speak his mind. You can go back and watch like very early interviews with him post Halloween and he's talking shit about Robert Altman. Like I have no time for Nashville, whether or not you like Altman's movies, like Altman was a force throughout the seventies. Whether or not you like Robert Altman, there's just a refreshing bit of candor in John Carpenter that you don't get, especially now where everybody's personalities are micromanaged by a team of like PR flacks that if, if, celebrities now were an ice cream shop like every flavor would be some form of vanilla basically that you really don't get the outspoken artist like you once did and when you do get them it it's almost like a, a yeah like i'm seeing steven's face like like how dare they like you know why can't everybody just play nice uh, and i love that you know for years Persons have clamored for more Carpenter films. Like his last one was 2010's The Ward. And people would love to see Carpenter make more movies. And he's just like, no, I'm happy. Like I've had my run. I'm just happy like playing video games, writing, reading comic books, writing some comics, composing these movie scores, like helping my son get his music career started, touring every now and again and watching the Lakers. Like, if I get to do those things, I've made more money than I can spend in, like, ten lifetimes. Why not sit back and enjoy it? I would love to see another Carpenter, like a, a hungry, wanting to go out on top Carpenter. I would love to see another movie, but I have nothing but respect for someone who is saying, this is the way I want to go out, I'm happy with it, and I think that's what we want. And I've said before, artists don't owe us going out on their shield like they don't owe us creating content until you know they keel over and die on in the director's chair let them have their run and then enjoy it enjoy whatever time they have left any way they have how and just be thankful for the body of work that we have i have an idea for a final carpenter project that i think would be really great if uh if you guys remind me at the end of the episode i'll talk well we can talk about it a little bit but sounds good okay so let's briefly talk about the background of this movie. I just have a few behind-the-scenes production notes here. Some of them I've just kind of interwoven uh, into the show itself. But he first has the idea for this movie around 1973, and he writes his first script for Escape from New York around 1974. And he starts to shop it after he makes Dark Star, which is a well-received student film that he did but he still wasn't getting hired for directing projects at this point like nobody was going to give carpenter the money to make this idea and he draws the inspiration for escape from really two things number one is the watergate scandal and how that is kind of percolating at this time with like nixon uh, president richard nixon audio taping his rivals uh or breaking into the Watergate uh, building at the National Democratic Headquarters and then recording himself on tape um, talking about these crimes or 
Not a good idea. Not a good look. Oh, yeah, sound don't, familiar? I don't know. Maybe. Sounds very familiar. Mm. It's like I tell kids now, never put anything in writing. Like, if you want to beat a kid's ass, don't put it in writing. You know, don't do it. It'll get you caught every single time. So he is really tapped into the cynicism of this age, like the early to mid-70s is a time of, like, real pessimism about the United States and the direction the country is headed in with Watergate and also post-Vietnam as well. It's just The Pentagon a, Papers. Yeah. Like, there was so mm-hmm. much stuff yeah. coming out at this time that people were finding yeah. out about that, I think, just yeah. is a major time sh- shift in public opinion on yeah. the structures of power for sure and it really delivers some of the best art like the in cinema like the 1970s it's i think if we were to rank like our favorite decades in movie history i know the 70s would be at the top for me and i see steven giving the thumbs up like just the yeah. films Big that came sound. out of that era oh just just a reflection of what was going on The other inspiration is the movie Death Wish and Mm -hmm. Charles Bronson specifically, you know, when Carpenter said like not that he agreed with like the really conservative like message of that movie, but this idea of New York as this hellscape is something that really appealed to him. And like Bronson as kind of like an everyman hero is something that really appealed to him as well uh, when he was like envisioning the world around Escape for New York. Well, I mean, I also think what it is, is like, especially in that movie, like there's a real murky morality in that movie that I think we see kind of replicated here. Because in that Charles Bronson, you know, Paul Kersey, that character is, I mean, just like in this one, he's an anti-hero. He's doing some really awful things. And there's a lot not to like about him. But sometimes you actually feel like, yeah, I get it. Like, I'm with you, but I shouldn't like you. But you're uh, yeah. it's very like it's a he's a conflicting character. And I think I have a feeling that's also maybe what kind of drew him. Mm-hmm. To him. He's the least terrible person in that movie, just like Pliskin is like the least terrible person in this movie. And it's, it's something about like society, too, that like, of course, like, you know, we we want to be peaceful and, you know, not violent and things like that. But like with Death Wish and this movie, it like kind of just reminds you that it's like. No, you know, sometimes violence just violence is a fact of life. And it's like something you like kind of can't ignore. And like, that's what I've always gotten from Death Wish. It's just like that reminder that like, yeah, no, as much as we want, like, you know, just peace, like it's, you know, unavoidable in certain circumstances. So, of course, that like kind of comes into play with uh, the politics angle. Well, and it's what do you do when the structures that you depend on fail you? Mm-hmm. Because like in Death Wish, you know, his daughter gets attacked and raped and his wife gets murdered and he goes to the police and nothing happens. He gets no help. They're not into it. Like, and so he's like, great, I guess this is, I guess it's on me. And so then that's what's kind of sets him off on this vigilante thing is that he's getting no help from the people that are supposed to help him. And I think that's what happens Mm -hmm. to here with Snake Plissken. He was a military veteran. He had all these awards and then he came home and just like so many veterans, you know, come home from Vietnam, the support was not there for him, became disillusioned and ended up having a life of crime and just kind of pigeonholed as a criminal. And it's that that same kind of idea where it's like, I mean, you're shunned, but 
all these systems that you're supposed to believe in, it's like they failed you. So what are you doing? Like it's it's a it's a very interesting idea that these two films I think play with yeah. that we see presented in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in this case, you in both movies, I think you see like. Bronson and Death Wish and Pliskin in Escape, they're both pawns. Like they're really both, you know, in some case, in the Kersey's case, he becomes like an active figure. He's supposed to be passive. He's supposed to rely on the system to do its work, but it fails him. And in this case, like Pliskin is a pawn of the system. He is being manipulated against his will um, by Hawk and the U.S. government to do this job that he could give two flips about. But they, yeah, but they need him. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing, like especially I mean, you got you, you shouldn't have brought up Bronson. I you should have known better. But um, but like in the later Death Wish, you know, sequels, the fact that they like bring him back to like clean up the streets, you know, but they like can't do it publicly because what he's doing is actually you know quite bad. But they like cheer him on. It's that it's that that weird thing just like they they need pliskin to go do this thing for him but aren't actually like helping him in any right. way it's like we don't plausible we don't, deniability we yeah we can't condone what you're doing and what you've done but like we also really need you so if you could do it that'd be great it's like similar <laughs> stuff from uh from the purge you know whenever they were sending in uh the the people you know to kind of yes. like it's all, it all connects yeah yep. so we have um the studio actually wanting to like once he makes Halloween and he signs on with Avco pictures to make two movies. The first of which is the fog. And that one is a moderate success, like not at Halloween's level of success, but you know, on a million bucks, it pulls in over $20 million. Like that's a great investment. Like that's a great return Mm -hmm. on your investment right there. And he's tapped to develop the script to, I think the, the novel, the Philadelphia experiment, but that falls through And he says, look, I've had this idea for a movie for a while. Like, here's the script for it. And they're like, great, go ahead and make this movie. And as he is, like, in production for it, he realizes, like, this is a little bit too dire. Like, it's actually missing something here. So he brings his buddy Nick Castle on board. Uh, Nick Castle, who plays the shape in the original Halloween and Castle helps with a rewrite of the script. And Carpenter is like really generous in his praise of Castle. He's like, anything funny or anything that you laughed at in this movie came from Nick Castle. The shot, the scene with the cabbie played by Borgenine uh, lighting a Maltoff cocktail and just like gleefully throwing it uh, at the hoodlums. Like that is pure Nick Castle, like this really fun, subversive sense of humor that he has. The studio actually want, you know, it's funny, we mentioned Charles Bronson. They want either Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson to play Snake Plissken. Too and, old. And, well, the studio's like, uh, Carpenter quickly vetoes them both for that reason. He's like, number one, like, they're both too old for the part. Number two, especially in the case of Bronson, he's like, he's too big a star. And I'm still a pretty novice director. Like, I still, this is his third like theatrical feature film i don't want to be on set and have this guy try to like overrule me so he's like i i need you know someone that i can kind of not put under his thumb but like is going to take direction i can't see chuck norris doing this movie because like to me chuck norris is like decidedly uncool 
Like there's like between like the ginger beard, the red state meat and potato politics and just something about him. Like to me, Chuck Norris has never been cool. And am I He's too uh, white bread? Yeah. Well, and, and people just tell you that Chuck Norris is cool. And like with, with Snake Plissken, like you need somebody that just like is just is cool. Yeah. You know, like that's right. kind of the whole thing behind his character is like he mm-hmm. just is, you know, like so it's like yeah. it, it wouldn't work. And I feel like, you know, uh, Carpenter, he's so savvy, too. I bet he was also thinking of it in like a budgetary way as well to be like, hey, I don't want to dedicate this chunk of my budget to a big name star because mm-hmm. I have some explosions I need to make happen yeah. and some mini planes I need. So, like, uh, I can't be spending money on, you know, the big name stars. So, yeah, well, Chuck Norris was like actually like a very accomplished like martial artist. And so it's like if you have somebody like that in your film, like you're going to need some some fights. Like, why would you not use somebody like that and have some cool like mm-hmm. fight scenes? But that adds like a whole other thing. And I just don't think. Yeah, he doesn't have the same edge, I guess. Like, I yeah. think Bronson does have that edge, but I think at this point he was a little, I mean, he was in his 60s at this point. Like and then 50s? Like, or like, yeah, late 50s, something like that, early 60s. And he just, he, I just, oof, I don't think him and Carpenter would have gotten Chuck along. Chuck Norris smiles too much to play Snake Plissken, you know? Oh. Yeah, like, yeah, he, just, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't have that grit and that mm-hmm. sneer. Like, he's not, like, hardened enough for this role, yeah. I don't think. I think he could work. I think he could work in a movie that Nick Castle doesn't write the humor in. Yeah. Right? If you took that original yeah. script, like, I think uh, Bronson could definitely work where I can't see any version of this where Chuck Norris works as Snake Plissken. I could see um, Bronson working in a version where, like, a lot of the humor is, like, scaled back or stripped out of it. But thankfully, we don't get that. Like, what we get is Carpenter tapping Kurt Russell, who he had worked with a few years prior on a television movie about Elvis uh, called Elvis. And Russell at the time was desperate to break out of like the roles he had been pigeonholed in at the time. Like he was like one of the, you know, contracted Disney movie stars back when Disney made these really kind of light, like no substance of them whatsoever. Um, live action, family friendly comedies, shaggy dog, absent-minded professor. Yeah. Yeah. For Russell, like the one I think he's best associated with is like the computer uh, wears tennis, that wore tennis shoes or the computer wears tennis shoes. Like that is nothing I've ever seen. And probably what a title. (laughs) Yeah. He did a whole series of those. Like he did like three or four. He was actually the, the rumor is that when Walt Disney died, they looked because he would just like write notes constantly. It was constantly writing notes. They looked at the notes on his deathbed, like next to his bed. That said, Kurt and, Russell killed me. No, the last thing he wrote was Kurt was something about Kurt Russell. So mm-hmm. like everyone likes to say that Walt Disney's dying thoughts were of Kurt Russell, which we could all be so lucky, uh, right? Yeah. Also, fun fact: just uh, while we're connecting all these threads, Kurt Russell, as a kid, was in a movie with Charles Bronson in called Guns of Diablo. Whoa. Um, so it's possible that in some way, maybe he was even like subconsciously pulling things, or not subconsciously. I'm sure they even may- probably talked about it, but like was pulling some stuff from Bronson mm-hmm. himself. So. Could be. 
So the movie, it's it's Carpenter's first union picture. Like he's decided he's made all these independent films. Now he wants to go union. Uh, and he does get to go union for this thanks to his production partner, Deborah Hill. Like Deborah had a really ingenious way of getting everybody on board in that, I guess, at the time, uh, if you wanted that, you had to like basically work on a union picture in order to get put into the made get put into the union. Mm-hmm. So Carpenter and, and Hill, they signed their union contracts. Then they signed the whole ca- uh, crew for this movie pre-joining the union. And once Carpenter and Hill are in the union, the union has to take the whole crew on board at that point. So she basically, I mean, kudos to Deborah Hill. And I know I'm not doing a great job of explaining the here's how it works, but the long and short of it, thanks to the smarts and cleverness of deborah hill a whole lot of people were able to get like union health insurance union can everybody hear the printer behind me right now no No? No. oh excellent okay um they were able to get like union benefits and union health insurance like thank to thanks to deborah hill what a boss she's such a boss she was amazing she's incredible i don't think that the early influence of deborah hill on carpenter's work can be understated Mm -hmm. like she is absolutely instrumental to john carpenter becoming john carpenter in the way that like polly platt was so instrumental in peter bogdanovich becoming who he was or marshall lucas was for for star wars like there's this long history in hollywood of women kind of propping up men and men getting all the credit for it and deborah hill is is such an but i think of of a lot of those she is one that really like she got hers and Mm -hmm. good for her like i I yeah, I love Deborah Hill. She's phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you I, I don't what is the last Carpenter Hill production? Like what is the last movie they I've got her up on? I uh, I mean, I think she might have been just like a producer in name only or a writer in name only on Escape from LA because mm-hmm. she did kind of co-create the character of Snake Plissken. Cuz it feels like there's a pretty much a uh, if you look at carpenter's filmography like i have this idea in my head that there's a pretty there's with deborah hill and post deborah hill and there's a pretty sharp drop off uh after that i think you know she they worked very very well together for a long number of years so i was i was wrong uh she actually did co-wrote the script co-write the script for Escape from L.A. with John mm-hmm. Carpenter and Nick oh. Castle. The three of them wrote this, that script together. So I think that might have been their last collab. Okay. I'm looking through her filmography right now, but I think that's right. I think the story with Escape from L.A. LA is uh, Kurt Russell did a lot of work on that movie. Like the reason it got made is Carpenter. Like he basically badgered Carpenter to the point like, come on, come on, let's make this movie like, you know. And I think Carpenter was like, all right, but you have to do all the work. Yeah. And I think like that is basically what happened. It's like Russell kept going to him with ideas and uh, he was like, great. He's like, I can make this happen and I don't have to do any of the work for it. So, Which is why I think that movie feels as uneven as it does. But that is 100% Kurt Russell's movie for sure. Mm-hmm. True yeah. uncle behavior. He just said yes to everything that Kurt wanted. Mm-hmm. Just fine, Kurt. Yeah. Yes, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then apparently on the uh, on the commentary for it, Carpenter just calls him Captain Ron the whole time, which I find <laughs> absolutely hysterical. Yeah. 
their commentaries are delightful because it's just like two old friends chatting yeah. about anything oh, they Kurt want. Oh, Kurt just laughing. Like, <laughs> I would love to get a beer with those guys. Like, yeah. if you like two celebrities you could get a beer with, I, I might pick the two of them. I think yeah. that would just be – and just sit there and listen to all their stories all night and just ask questions and – God, that sounds like so much fun. No. Oh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, man, ticket. That would I would oh, I hate to say it. I would pick Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn over John Carpenter. Don't yeah. hate me, but them together, like I would just be like, you guys are so cute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. A true Hollywood, like all those years later, a true Hollywood love story, and I think mm-hmm. it would bring like big parent energy to it, like big like cool parent energy to it. Um. All right, so the St. Louis is your stand-in for New York City because obviously they can't film uh, this movie on a $7 million budget in New York City. Uh, And they found, I think, like a chunk of the city that basically had been destroyed in a fire a couple years before. Like, so they were able to create that. Like, it already had that post-apocalyptic look to it. They didn't have to do a lot of dressing for it to make it work in order to get uh, get it to give it that grimy, burned out, like prison type of look. They actually bought one of the bridges for $1 from the city and then sold it back after production, like the 69th Street Bridge at the end of this movie. They bought that from the city and then sold it back. And the reason for the same thing for a dollar, the say, the reason being is like the city wouldn't be liable if there was any damage at that point. It would be on the production crew, which is and you know pretty clever idea. It's still lo- and it still looks like that too. Like no lie, like there's like parts of St. Louis like you'll be like in like ooh the nice downtown area, and it's mm-hmm. like a classic one of the things where it's like oh you take the wrong exit, you are in like an absolute just like dead, like like yeah. literally like decrepit like. Uh, mm-hmm. portion of the city and like because that bridge is in function we don't use that bridge um so yeah so it yeah very makes sense it looks very post-apocalyptic yep. yeah james cameron works on this movie young jimmy yep. cameron mm-hmm. is one of the effects artists the um the scene where the helicopter is flying in over central park and landing like that is a giant matte painting that was like overseen by Cameron and it's funny you listen to like you watch on the phenomenal Scream Factory two disc Blu-ray of this movie they have like a behind the scenes featurette with like Joe Alves and the other effects artists that worked on it and one of them talks about Jimmy Cameron and he catches himself and he was like yeah I was a young you know even then like Jim Cameron he was a real well, he had a certain way of getting across what he wanted to get done. Um, so, which, which, yeah, which is he stopped himself. Um, but they talk about his contributions to it. Movies a hit comes out uh, last year. It celebrated its uh, four. Uh, sorry, 1981, It's release. So two years ago, it celebrated its fortieth anniversary. And it's a modest hit. Like it pulls in over 25 million in the United States alone. Uh, it's very well reviewed by critics. And I would say one of its biggest lasting marks on pop culture when you play the video game like Metal Gear, uh, Snake in Solid Snake in the Metal Gear series, like very much a ripoff of Snake Plissken in Escape from New York, uh, right down to the eye patch. So, you know, yay, you know, that's quite a legacy right there. Which we're supposed to get uh, Oscar Isaac as um, 
as a solid snake at some point still i'm pretty sure and and i know i know the metal gear solid movie has been like on and off like one of those things like production hell for like eight years but uh last we heard it's supposed to be oscar isaac so we'll kind of get oscar isaac as snake bliskin in a way that would rule we're supposed to get a remake of this too by the and that is something that's been like at one point i think the rock was attached to it like I thought that way. was Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, yeah. you're right. Okay. But that doesn't work either. No. No, it doesn't. No. But there is, I think Radio Silence is currently trying to get like a reboot, not even a remake, but like, like they did with Scream, like a requel of Escape from New York off the ground. And there was a rumor that like uh, Russell Wyatt was going to, uh, sorry, Wyatt Russell was going to play like the snake Pluskin role and he's like no that would be why would i do that that would be career suicide we're not and he put a uh curb stomp that rumor pretty quickly yeah all right don't blame him i have an idea for the continuation of this franchise but we'll talk about that at the end mm-hmm. why not why wait why are you making this work? okay i i'm fine i'll do it now rip the bandit no, off we'll I... wait we'll wait let's okay. move on to the i just just wanted just to do that suffer Yes, absolutely. So let's talk this movie. Let's talk Escape from New York. And I guess what I what really struck me when I was thinking about Carpenter and thinking about doing this series is like the beauty of like the elevator pitch for him. Like his best movies, the pitch is so simple and the execution is so simple. He tells very simple stories, but he does it like a master craftsman. Well, you think of like Halloween, like a mass psychopath stalks babysitters on Halloween night. You know, the fog, a deadly fog carries the vengeful ghost into into a town during its uh, centennial celebration. And this is very much like a veteran turned criminal uh, must rescue the president um, after he's stranded on Manhattan Island, which has been transformed into a maximum security prison like really easy stories like what do we think of carpenter's ability to ring the maximum amount of like thrills and horror and suspense out of these very very simple ideas i think what's really cool about the simple premise of this one is like it it sets you up for like the 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 message that really doesn't come in until like literally the last five minutes of the movie because the whole rest of the time you're really not thinking about it like you're just like oh yeah this is a simple like we got the escape plan we're gonna go in and out we got the action set pieces and and you're not really questioning the why of it like at all because it's so simple and then once that you know the final five minutes hits and then you kind of see what the whole message was and it's like oh like it wasn't like that simple at all so it's like the simplicity of it like kind of tricks you and then so like because i i I didn't uh, get it the first time whenever i watched the movie but then the second time i was just like oh i was like okay i was like i like that thank you for that Uh, that was a nice middle finger at the end uh that's like you know perfect carpenter I think it's how he um, thrives the best, I guess. Like the stories that are simpler, I think, are typically the ones that he executes the best. I mean, I think some of the ones, like even Prince of Darkness, it's a little complicated and it gets a little like, what? Okay. And then um, obviously like Ghosts of Mars and some, it's like the more complicated they get, like the less I like them typically. Mm-hmm. I think he's extremely good at executing these really simple stories and and I know it's not just him there's a lot of other people involved but um 
like displaying them in such beautiful ways. Like a lot of these films are really like this one included is really beautiful to look at and just like incredibly like visceral and engaging and just I, I don't know. It's just a treat for the eyes to actually watch. So I think that when things are a little bit simpler, he's able to really maximize that as well. Yeah, there's something that I love about just a very basic story told very well. But the basicness of the story is really just in recounting the story because when you crack it open, there's so much more going in. And I think mm-hmm. the more there is to the the setup, to, to piggyback off your point, Rachel, the more there is to the setup, I think he tends to get a little lost in the weeds. Yeah. Because I think the basic setup for Prince of Darkness is relatively easy, like an ancient evil in the basement of a church that scientists are trying to study. But then you crack that open and then all of a sudden you've got, you know, the 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 house the the unhoused people and and all these other things that you kind of keep adding on top of it and then you kind of it, it kind of gets away from him there uh as 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 it goes and I, but again there's there's something very simple about this execution the way he sets it up and knocks it down in a way that feels surprising and yet makes perfect sense all at the same time like it feels inevitable and yet it's still right there in front of you and i think he's 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 a very good storyteller and i think a lot of that comes from the fact that he was raised on westerns like a very kind of simple premise a setup a story there's a good guy there's a bad guy the bad guy needs to get out of town how do we get him out of there and so when when set up with a fairly simple premise he's able to move forward in in a very masterful way yeah i I look at carpenter as like he makes prestige b movies like essentially he is Someone not only raised on Westerns, but like the Howard Hawks movies, the drive-in science fiction movies of the 1950s and 1960s. Like those are his mono. Like those are what, you know, his, what he grew up on. And he spends a lot of his career kind of like chasing the thrills of those movies. But unlike a lot of others who have done that, he has such an extraordinary level of talent and command of his craft and also just an, an amount of poise as well, just a self-assuredness of what he is doing that he is able to take these like simple B movies and give them an A level shine to them. Like, I think better than better than anybody else ever has. And that is really, really the magic of John Carpenter is that he's able to take simple things and turn them into something still worth kind of talking about like this 40, 50 years later. And like Rachel, you had said how, you know, it's not just John Carpenter, like responsible for these movies. One of the beauties of this run, like Halloween through the thing in particular, is you have a troop in all intents and purposes. Like this is Carpenter's second collaboration with Kurt Russell. They'll go on, I believe, to make five movies together all the way through um, Escape from L.A. You have... Elvis, you have this, you have The Thing, you have Big Trouble in Little China, and I think uh, Escape from L.A. is the fifth and final collaboration. But like now you're like starting that run in earnest with Russell. You're bringing back Deborah Hill to produce. Nick, everyone he wore, like Dean Cundy, like you look at all of the movies Carpenter either directed or co-wrote uh, and produced during this run, including the second and third Halloween, and just how good they look how clean they look and how you can tell you're watching a carpenter 
movie from this era, not just from the way he films, but from the way that like Cundy makes it look as a director of photography and cinematographer. Yeah. Cundy is, I think an incredible collaborator for him. Mm -hmm. Like just really, like you said, crystallizes his look. Yeah. There's, there's something like, there's a weird like juxtaposition, like, cause it, it, it is clean, but to have like a clean post-apocalyptic world is like such an odd, like uh vibe to get. And, and uh, something about the way that they shoot things is like, even though like, yes, this is like such a like messy, dangerous world and everything, something about it still feels, yeah, very, I don't know. Um, uh, it, it, it's it, it's kind of one of those things that like it, it reminds you that you're watching a movie like that. This is like like a, a very like distinct like a separation of reality of this like kind of slight dystopian future that he was kind of going for. Yeah. Well, it's it's dark, but you can actually see things. Like I don't know, right. maybe some like modern movies. The entire movie this, is like... nighttime. <laughs> like literally, the whole movie is nighttime. But like you see yeah. everything perfectly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it still feels like very vibrant and like, but doesn't feel false. It's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a very thin line. I think that they're able to actually like deliver here, where it yeah. feels actually real in some ways and like dark, but yeah, not over lit. I, I mean, it is. It's very colorful too, but yeah. It's not overstuffed. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. It's it's definitely not that. And I just, what Cundy is able to capture when he works with Carpenter and what he would go on to do uh, with Spielberg, you know, like Jurassic Park is celebrating an anniversary uh, as well. Like it came out 30 something years ago, 32, 30 years ago this week. 30. I think it's 30. Jeez. Yeah. All right. We're getting old. Um, <laughs> Or actually, I'm not even getting there. I'm there. But just not only that, but in front of the camera, you have like, again, we mentioned Kurt Russell, but he brings back Tom Atkins, who's going to work with a few times. Donald Pleasance is back again. Like he always gets these great performances out of Donald Pleasance. Uh, Adrian Barbeau, who he was married to at the time that he makes this movie, like she made her big screen debut in The Fog. Uh, Dick Warlock is back as Kurt Russell's stunt double in this, and he is continuing that uh, collaboration on the soundtrack with Alan Howarth as well, which would be very fruitful for the two of them throughout the 80s. And what, and again, I think we've mentioned, but Deborah Hill producing as, as well and like making sure that everything is wrangled together. And what you get is this idea it it feels like a well-oiled machine. Like everybody knows their role. Everybody knows where they have to be. Everybody knows what to expect on the set. So a lot of the hardship of making a movie can you can kind of put that to the side. You don't have to worry about it. And it's almost like watching this little troop of performers move from like production to production. And I love that. I love the idea of having that when you are watching these movies. Carpenter strikes me as the kind of guy who would just say, why am I going to do it if I'm not going to have a good time doing it? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. why would I do it if I can't and like have my friends around? And so he casts consistently a lot of the same people or uses a lot of the same people. And I, I have a great respect and admiration for filmmakers that are able to do that and are able to amass just a, a people around them that also enjoy working in that kind of environment and you can see various people kind of come and go throughout Carpenter's filmography. I know event, at some point he, Cundy drops out. Um, Deborah Hill obviously steps away. Um, 
Russell works with him until about the, the mid nineties. So like eventually some of these people start to fall off. And in, in some respects, you could argue that the work might suffer a little bit as a result. Some would argue that some might not. Uh, but I'm, most people would say that the latter half of Carpenter's filmography tends to be a little weaker. Yeah. Um, and I would probably, for the most part, I would agree with that, but like, there's something about these early years where everyone's kind of starting out and they're all kind of coming up together um, that I really, I really love. And I really admire. And I always love those directors who have like that same group of people that they just love working with and always seem to have a good time with. And Carpenter strikes me as that kind of guy who's just like, I'm, I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to have fun. And and I want my friends around with me for that. So, yeah. I I feel like it's always a Testament to these type of directors that like do like kind of uh, accumulate these crews and like uh, troops, you know, that's like, uh, you know, these are the directors you uh, never hear about the films being like, oh man, like this was a great film, but like it was hell to make and all these things. You don't hear that about any of Carpenter's movies. It's like, no, it's like, it sounds like they, you know, like, because you know, Carpenter, he's like, hey, I'm not trying to waste time. I'm not trying to bullshit. We're going to make a movie. We're going to do it. And like, and so like, I feel like those are the directors that, you know, kind of always have these crews that like keep coming back to work with them because they're like, oh no, I know like this is going to be, you know, a good professional time, you know, making this film. Uh, even though like, of course, you know, we've gotten great films out of those other ones, but like, you know, it's, it's much better to, you know, not uh, make filmmaking sound like a nightmare, you know? <laughs> yeah. What do you think of this? Let's talk about Snake Plissken. Let's talk about the character of Snake because to me, Snake Plissken is like you know how if you have like an Xbox and you can design your avatar, you know basically like Snake Plissken is John Carpenter designing his Xbox avatar for himself. Like this is who he sees himself as when he looks in the mirror, right? I mean, I I heard or read somewhere that like Kurt Russell had a lot to do with this character, though, like the wardrobe, the eye patch, the mannerisms, the backstory. So I also just throwing that out there. I think there is a lot of things that Carpenter sees in himself, kind of the anti-authority going against the grain, like not fitting into any sort of traditional structure. Like, I do think that is all very Carpenter, but I think a lot of the mannerisms and the look and the presentation of Snake Plissken, I feel like mm-hmm. that is very Kurt Russell. So it's kind so of it's, a, a nice melding. It's the it's the Carpenter-Russell love child that yes. is Snake yeah. Plissken. Right I would on. think so, yeah. But I would say like the ethos of yes. a Snake Plissken is very much John Carpenter. 100%. Yeah. Well, the idea of the anti-hero, like I think John mm-hmm. Carpenter sees himself as like an anti-hero in yeah. some ways where he doesn't fit into this sort of traditional yeah. filmmaking, like sort of idea of how you go about being a, a successful director in the Hollywood system, right? Like yeah. clearly he does not work well under those kind of like guidelines yeah. and things like he's been very open about mm-hmm. that, um, but also is like clearly a very talented filmmaker so it's kind of this like weird he's straddling the line a little bit and i think that we see that sort of anti-hero mentality mirrored in him and a lot of his characters because we see this in the thing we see this in they lit like we see this kind of character across almost all of his films it's it's an archetype for him definitely yeah so he really he likes these characters clearly this these ideas of these strong leads that are neither good nor bad mm-hmm. and that is neither good nor bad so yeah 
it's like kind of a it's a it's like a combination maybe not only the way that he sees himself but like the way that he thinks like the industry sees him of like Mm -hmm. oh yeah this is the guy that like you know they know he has the skills they may not like his methods and like all these things but like when they need him and like when they want him to do a thing they're gonna come to him and he's gonna deliver you know so it's like because he's the best he best there is at what he does yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and you get this idea that like the studios because he was a studio filmmaker like he was very much a director for hire like when you think of john carpenter like halloween wasn't john carpenter's idea like you know um, or Yablums came to him and said, I had this idea about like a guy killing babysitters, uh, make that a movie. And Carpenter said, great. Like it wasn't like a great passion project of his. Like I would argue maybe Carpenter's like real passion project was the thing because he had such an affinity for the thing from another world. Like it's one of his favorite movies is what you see playing in the background during Halloween as the movie progresses. But Carpenter is very much a guy that was a studio for a uh, director for hire with the studios. But you can argue that the directors, the studios really had no idea how to use them. And maybe Carpenter's own prickly attitude cost him a lot in the end. Like he had one movie that bombed and that set him back. He talks very openly and we'll cover the thing late this year I believe he talked about how like that's the one movie that really hurt him uh, and the reception of that really hurt him because so much of him went into that and when it bombed you know it cost him Firestarter it cost him a lot of jobs and yeah. you have to wonder how much of that is the fact that Carpenter wasn't a guy that liked to play ball where <sighs> this is going to be controversial there's no reason why John Carpenter hasn't had a better commercial career than, say, Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi is a wonderful filmmaker. Sam Raimi is a brilliant filmmaker. Sam Raimi also knows how to play ball. Yeah. He is very good at yep. the public relations side of it where maybe Carpenter isn't. And I think Sam Raimi got chances, say, after Time Crimes which bombed as well that other crime wave you mean crime wave thank you um thank you so much i am so awful with names after crime wave that should have set him back more than it did but he was able to rebound and press on carpenter should have had like a very ramey type of career as well but just didn't i think that makes sense um i think there was a part of carpenter that kind of wanted to do the classic studio like journeyman filmmaker career because um, again his hero his filmmaking hero is howard hawks mm-hmm. and that guy i i looked at howard hawks's filmography last night after i watched this movie and just that man made 45 films that he was credited as director on from the 30s all the way up to like the 70s and and, and he was just just cranking them out like the man had an insane career as just a director for hire. And I think there's a part of Carpenter that kind of wants that, but also once he sees behind the curtain and sees just what this is, that anti-establishment kind of kicks in and he's like, no, fuck that. I would rather do this my way and enjoy what I'm doing and have a good time with people that I like than have to kowtow and worry about this star and that ego. And 
I mean, some of those lessons he learns the hard way, like when he takes memoirs of an invisible man and has to work with, you know, the perennial thorn in many a director's side, Chevy Chase. But you you can also see he takes movies like that, like um, Starman, because he wants to do something other than just horror for his entire career. Like uh, Assault on Precinct 13 is is essentially a Western siege movie, just, you know, placed in a modern police precinct. He, he wants to toy around with theme and with genre in, in, in fun and interesting ways, but the studio is not going to allow him to do that. And so he he just decides I'm going to do it how I want to do it, particularly after the heartache of, of the thing. But I, I think he tends to get in his own way a lot because of how outspoken he is and because of that anti-establishment attitude that we've talked about like that uh, that seems to work against him would i like to see him do more movies sure but i would much rather see him do movies that he wants to do because those always feel a lot more personal and a lot better in my mind yeah so what is it about we've talked about snake is kind of an avatar for carpenter but what does carpenter do like we talk about like snake being just this like cool mythical awesome badass character what does carpenter do to kind of establish that i think there's a lot that goes on here to establish snake plissken as a badass in a really short amount of time i mean it's it's that intro scene i mean it's everything like the way that he lights him like you know he's just brought in and you only see like the lower half and he's you know rocking those pants and those boots like men why aren't we rocking those tight pants like snake plissken these days it's so good um, but just like the way he's like litten in darkness and Hawks is loading his gun and the fact that like he's so scared of Pliskin that he's going to load it in front of him like as he's already in the room and he's like preparing and then they're like, you know, oh, he's dangerous. And so just uh, this this first introduction scene just like really uh, puts all this mystique onto Snake and uh, and um, you know, as much as I, I prefer Kurt Russell and is more, you know, like uh, charismatic roles, I'd say. But like this is the the perfect like stoic role for him. And like, you know, this this voice that he's doing and the way that he like, you know, lights himself a cigarette, doesn't even ask. He just like takes Hawk cigarettes and just lights one for himself. Just like all the little things just like tell you so much about this character. And like it's just like a, a, a so much of great show don't tell. Absolutely. I love the way he holds the cigarettes by the end, like like by the end that you light. He just like to end. He just he'll hold it like that. Even after it's lit, he'll just like take it out of his mouth and kind of hold it like that. And I'm just like, that's such an incredible <laughs> detail that just shows you what a badass this guy is. And it, 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 it just feels like an afterthought, but it completely tells you 100 percent exactly who this guy is. I it's so good. Well, you've like you've already mentioned like Stephen, you've already mentioned the the Western influence and like that is very much here too just that kind of classic american like stoic idea of you know manliness right the john wayne like Mm -hmm. i mean when people are telling him like all the time like i thought you were dead that's actually taken from a western called big jake where john wayne plays him and and, like i think that there's layers to that but that's that and then you've got lee van cleef who is like a massive western star Mm -hmm. like playing opposite him so you've also got that kind of just like that stoic like whatever all right i'm gonna take care of business you want me to go save the president all right like if i'm not back by dawn you know or whatever like it's just he's just so calm cool and collected and like he's like i don't want to be here but like right fuck 
I'll go do it. Like he like, he's mm-hmm. in handcuffs, like still bartering with him. Like they're like, you know, they need him, and he's like, I'm still thinking. Like you know, it's just like yeah. like like you are the one in handcuffs, but yet like he is the one still holding the power, which is like super exactly. cool. And the- he's about to get shipped into this prison anyway, and he just could not give a rat's ass. So when he even when he's given this out, like you need to do a mission. And you're out, like you see, like he's undecided this whole time whether or not he's going to do it, and he's just such a prickly dick about it. Where it's like the president is in there, the president of what? He's just <laughs> such a great well, like, line. Oh, yeah. he's not swayed. That's the thing. It's like they're trying to appeal to sort of that like that soldier, that patriot that he was at some point, but like that version of Snake is dead. Yeah. Like it, he is like so like hardened and bitter. <laughs> like that I institution that. let him down so much. There's no love there anymore, right? Yeah, president of what? Like who's president? I don't give a fuck. Like like he's gonna do it because it's uh, like a self preservation thing for him. He's exactly. not doing it out of some sort of sense of duty. Like he is done with that part of his life. I think one of the things that really helps us love Snake as much as we do, obviously Kurt Russell is fucking killing it from the moment he walks on screen, but Borgnine does a lot of heavy lifting once he gets into New York because Borgnine, he Borgnine would play the same role in Red later on uh, with Bruce Willis's character of just like the sycophant who follows him around, loving everything that he does. Action hype man. Exactly. Like, oh my God, you snake biscuit. I can't believe you're here. Holy crap. Oh yeah, sure. I'll take you. Where do you need to go? Hey, it's me. I'm Cabby. Let me help. Like that's just, and he goes and it's, it's great. But you, you see how Cabby just fucking worships this guy and how everyone else is totally afraid of him. It's not just what Russell is doing. It's how everyone else reacts yeah. to what Russell is doing. That really solidifies in your mind. Oh, this guy is a great, a badass. Yeah. I, I think also what goes a long way is the interplay between uh, Lee Van Cleef as Huck and uh, Russell as Pliskin as well, because you can see the number one, like Lee Van Cleef seemed like someone poised for a career resurgence playing this type of role in mm-hmm. Carpenter movies. And I'm surprised this is really the only collaboration between the two, like you can easily see him in the thing, right? Like you see him playing one of those grizzled guys there. Um, Cleef in his portrayal is like the only guy that can kind of like, yeah, he's a bit afraid of Pliskin, but he seems to be the only guy that can stand up to him as well and is able to kind of like meet him at his level. And the way, um, Cleef and, and Russell play off each other as fan, even at the end, when uh, Pliskin is walking away and he's like, you're going to kill me now, Pliskin, after he'd got... And I love how Russell delivers that threat in the first act. And by act three, he's like, I'm too tired. Maybe after I wake up, like after yeah. I get some sleep. Yeah. It's not great. Worth it. <laughs> like so funny of Pliskin to, yeah, not only one be like, hey, we're good. If you survive this, we're going to give you your freedom and him just be like, well, I'm going to kill you. Like, it's just like, it's so funny. But then... um there's I, I'm a sucker for the the action movie trope of the hero and um, another character having a relationship via uh, walkie-talkie 
And so it's like even their chemistry of just like their back and forth when they're like not, you know, in the movie together anymore for like a good, you know, chunk of the middle. It's just them talking on walkie talkie and they even have this mm-hmm. uh, interesting like banter and chemistry to them. So like, uh, you know, I, I love that. Now, if Pliskin is at one end of the spectrum in terms of like ultimate cool characters in a movie, you have to go all the way to the other end of the scale and place Donald Pleasance as the precedent in this movie in terms of least cool characters <laughs> in a movie. Pleasance, this might be his best performance in any of his collaborations with John Carpenter. I love that he's not even trying to hide the British accent as the president. Like we just decided we're going to hire a King basically to be president of the U S but just how Pleasance plays the president as the sniveling, awkward coward throughout the whole movie. It's his stick. Donald Pleasance in that glam wig when he's tied to the chair <laughs> and how he like angrily shakes it off. Like he almost pitches a temper tantrum when he shakes it off. Like, Oh, Pleasance is so in on whatever joke is being played at that moment. Pleasance is a huge part of it, and I absolutely love it. I mean, the you're the Duke of New York. You're a number one. <laughs> you're a number one. And he's like pissed himself. Oh, it's great. I mean, it's. I mean, he's in on the joke that Carpenter's doing of like this is his idea of the present. This is what he thinks of the government. Like you know, and like right. even though you know we talked about Snake being a pawn, the the movie treats the present like one too. Like like he is literally just this person like you know being dragged around uh, like a rag doll throughout you know New York. And then he is just like kind of this MacGuffin. And, you know, then once we even see at the end that like, you know, he doesn't matter still. And like, you know, yeah. and like the way that they kind of throw that back in his face. So it's like, yeah, portraying the president in this way was very intentional on Carpenter of, you know, being like, yeah, no, this is what I think of the government. Like you, you guys mm-hmm. are just little sniveling rats, essentially. Well, it's 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 the president is powerful, but we, yes, yes. You know, the, the position mm-hmm. is yes. powerful, but not strong. You know, it's like very easily like undermined. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I love that Pleasance had this whole backstory in his head for how a British person could be president of the United States. He like works on it really like puts a lot of thought into it. Comes to Carpenter. He says, look, I've got this, the, this, this backstory for this guy. Carpenter goes, Oh, cool. I don't care. <laughs> that's great i'm I'm glad if you if you need that that's cool it's not going in the movie you're fine wear the wig donald right just 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 shut up and piss yourself man oh, just he'll it's take fine. the check are you kidding me he'll take the check. <laughs> and apparently on set like uh adrian barbeau gave an interview like years later to cg i think it was like to gq talking about like her role. we'll talk about adrian barbeau's maggie in just a little bit because she's amazing mm. talks about how like Pleasance had a knack for knowing just before Carpenter was going to call action because right before he would like Pleasance would throw in some sort of joke or line that would cause everybody to break off camera. And I think Isaac Hayes talked about this as well, filming with Pleasance, like that scene where uh, Pleasance is all chained up 
in Isaac Hayes is like, it's a really good thing the camera wasn't on me during those scenes because I could not keep a straight face. He's like, he absolutely lost it at everything Donald Pleasant said and all his mannerisms on camera. Like, again, Pleasant's talking about a guy who just didn't give a shit. He's like, just, you know, I'll have my bourbon in my trailer. I'm here for X amount of days. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm here to make a paycheck and have a really good time doing so. And I, I just... Very, very cheeky British humor. And yet never gives a false performance. No. Like he, he he turns in some really great big performances. Like every time I see Pleasance on the on the cast list, I'm like, oh, I'm in good hands here. I I know yeah. I'm gonna see something that I really enjoy. And I think I have in my notes here that he shot him six Don't, times. Did I get I'm that right? I was just gonna say it. I'm like, do you think that I was literally had the joke in my head? Is did 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 this film miss an opportunity after he kills the Duke to yell, I shot him six times I'm, or, you know, to maybe look forward to midnight run and just, I got the Duke. I, I, I love the moment though, because that is finally like, you know, Pleasant's like, he's playing it like pretty like straightforward. Like, you know, he's mm-hmm. like kind of, you know, he's scared and everything, mm-hmm. but like, that's finally the moment where like Pleasant's has his like little un- unraveling moment after he shoots him. And he's just ah, and like has his mm-hmm. manic moment. But then mm-hmm. at the end, it's his performance that really sells like kind of the, the message of the movie for me is like in uh, when he's, you know, getting cleaned up for the, for the press conference, he's getting shaved and he turn he goes straight into like president mode. Like he just got mm-hmm. rescued after being like, you know, kidnapped, his finger chopped off all these crazy things. And then he is able to turn it, you know, go straight into president mode, even in the way that he thanks Snake. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'll give you whatever you want. And then Snake's like, just a moment of your time. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going on the air in a minute and a half. So uh, what, what, what do you got to say? And like, you know, his his um, his uh, thank you is so false. And like he, he like turns into like just that true politician again. And like, I love that. And like, that's like what made the movie click for me of like, oh, yeah, like it just like, you know, they don't care. The message doesn't matter. And then like, you know, and then Pleasance's face when the, the music plays during the interview is just like so like he's he's get, he's doing great shit here. Yeah. Well, it's almost like the role of the president, again, is like he's an actor. It's just a role that he has to play. He has to be on his hit his mark. He has lines he has to deliver, and you can't veer off of those. And um, remind me again who was president when this movie came out? That would have been the uh, Ronald Reagan. Oh, okay. Just Interesting. Into, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's funny because you think of, like, Reagan's early years and you – Part of what propelled him into, well, part of it was just the state the country was in in the late 70s as well and the anger that was uh, bubbling under the surface. But Reagan, like, talking about, like, America being, like, the shining city on the hill. And you have what you have here is uh, uh, very much not that. I mean, and again, not a lot of set dressing going on in, like, one of the major cities of the United States in the Midwest, like a pretty major metropolis and carpenter is able to find it and go like yeah we don't need to really do much here to make it look like like a burned out husk well and like did you like notice like the locations that like they do go to the different like sets so like the first one is a theater Mm -hmm. right very like interesting you know carpenters like commenting perhaps just on just the issues in the Hollywood filmmaking structure and then they go to a diner and it's just like it's all these like kind of traditional American 
Mm. like ideas of like, oh, these are very traditional Americana. Like this is America. Mm -hmm. It's the greatest. And so you have this diner where like people are literally falling through the floors and then you go to a library, which is like, you know, houses all the education and the knowledge. And it's just, you know, crumbling around them and used only used to like, because isn't Brain the smartest one? He's kind of like, what is he making gas? Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, you know, using that knowledge for very like basic survival things. I don't know. I just think that there's a lot actually in those locate because those could have been anything. They could have been empty oh. rooms. But the fact that they are these very specific ideas of like things that America holds up as like why were the quote unquote greatest, right? Carpenter's showing them in very like harsh yeah. lights, I think. And iconography that Reagan would have certainly weaponized in order to yes. become president. Like he was MAGA before MAGA, really. That yes. his entire like platform was based around this return to traditional values. Mm-hmm. And it's all rotten under the surface, which is yes. very much I mean that that becomes Carpenter's almost entire eighties output is a response to Reagan, which is fascinating to me yeah and reagan in his filmography aside from his final role on screen he never played a heavy he always played the hero he always played the good guy Mm -hmm. it wasn't until his last role uh in don siegel's remake of the killers that he played the heavy the bad guy the guy with the negative the guy that was always scheming um and i hate to say it like reagan was fucking awesome in that role like he was actually really good in that role. Um, I love how they create New York here. They Joe Alves, who was one of the production designers on Jaws just a few years earlier. It, this is a New York um, skyline and, and buildings that aren't created by CG. They're not computer rendered. It is, and they didn't have a lot of great reference photos to use as well. Like there are no computers you're going to go on or you can easily, you can't pull up Google earth and get like the skyline for New York there. I think he said he had a pamphlet that he used as a point of reference and they created all of these buildings, like the uh, world trade center, all the buildings surrounded it, created them with cardboard. So cool. That is what, yeah. yeah. And that the floor that they used, like the studio they used uh, mm-hmm. in order to, Uh, create like the water effects around it they noticed that like the painted patterns on the cement floor looked like ripples of water and they were able to use that in order to help create that kind of look of like waves lapping and it looks gorgeous like I know it's just simple model work and he talks I think Alves talked behind the scenes about using like a a paper clip or like a needlepoint pin to count how many stories there were in each building to make sure that they got it right and i think it looks gorgeous i think it looks absolutely beautiful how they created uh the look of new york for this with despite very limited resources it, yeah. re- i'm sorry go ahead oh, I- oh no that's all I was just gonna say, I, I really, uh, I think the the set decoration really comes through with uh, with the Duke and like his area specifically because I really love that even though it's like has this uh, dystopian feel to it and everything that there's still like kind of uh, this trashy lavishness to it. 
um, that like uh, you know kind of feels like defying in a way that it's like oh you want to cast us away to a prison state but like no we, we still want to have nice things mm-hmm. and like if I want to put chandeliers on my car I'm gonna put chandeliers on my car you know like so yeah. like even like little details like that like are yeah. so interesting for this uh, specific dystopian world this like this world kind of feels like the in-between of uh, mm-hmm. like Mad Max 1 and 2 like, cause you know, there's like mm. kind of like a jump in the, in the apocalyptic nature, but like this kind of feels like the in-between of uh, those mm-hmm. two films. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It, it, the whole look of the, of the play, particularly that those opening shots of New York remind me of like the rundown decrepit version of Los Angeles and Blade Runner. Um, like where everything's like very glossy and clean and very futuristic. And then you just kind of run that into the ground a little bit and you get this which looks completely realized completely beautiful but also like really gross at the same time (laughs) right and when you think of like when this comes out in 1981 and it's a time when science fiction and fantasy they're not creating these rundown worlds like as much as like star wars like it gets kudos for creating a world that looks very lived in and it looks like there's obviously like a class system there of, of some sort it's still like super cool speed racers and super cool ships and giant star destroyers like it looks like you'd want to live in that world uh you think of like clash of the titans is this year flash gordon is just the year before Battlestar galactica was on television so you're not getting these like rundown post-apocalyptic science fiction worlds anymore aside from maybe the road warrior a couple years before right and then you drop this grimy dirty dusty bloody little movie into all of that and then a couple years later you do have your blade runners you do have uh mad max beyond thunderdome so you start to see a return to maybe that more rundown lived in cynical world confirm this is in the mad max universe there we go yep yeah (laughs) and it is that's right so um and canon accepted yeah we're going to have uh, Hardy is going to be playing the role of Snake Plissken in the reboot is what's going to happen. That was a big no. sigh. Not a fan? I, no, I like, I don't, I just, I would like to see somebody maybe not quite as um, buff. A, a, no, like A-list, you know, like I like Tom Hardy. I think that, what's the guy that was in Upgrade who's like, oh, like looks like Tom Logan Hardy? Paul, Logan Marshall Green? Yeah, I think he would be pretty yeah. cool. I, I, if I got that. that name right, I will g- give myself $5. So I think you did. Yeah. Then it's like when you want um, Tom Hardy. Yeah, I want to go out for Tom Hardy. No, we have Tom Hardy at home, and it's Logan Marshall Green. It is yeah. Logan who is Marshall awesome. Green. Yeah. Can so. confirm. It's budget Tom Hardy. Who's exactly. still, like, who's amazing. Like, between, you're right, yes. Upgrade and The Invitation. Like, no... No shade to Logan Marshall Green, who no, I love it. Yeah, but I thought it, I thought it was Hardy in Upgrade for the first like hour of that movie, <laughs> like I really did. So there you go. If he's listening, A plus work in Upgrade. Um, he's not listening. Can we talk about Maggie? Let's talk about Adrian Barbo is Maggie because I don't think Carpenter gets enough credit for creating or really with Deborah Hill like co-creating these like uh female characters that cameron gets a lot of credit for 
turning like Sigourney Weaver into the Ripley as we most remember her. And also like Linda, Linda Hamilton uh, as um, Sarah in the Terminator movies. Badass but, mommy. Yeah, badass mom. But he has like a very, like Cameron has like a very specific way of writing like strong women characters. Like they're awesome with guns. They can drink you under the table and they can beat the shit out of you. Like that is his prototype. But also their mommy and their mom. I, I, I think Carpenter's is working through a lot of issues that just oh, my... mean Cameron, 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 right. Yeah, yes. Cameron. Yeah. I think Cameron's working through a lot of issues. Cause I think he's got a, He's definitely got a mom thing. But he's doing okay for himself, though. He is. No, he's I'm just right. saying. <laughs> you know, just saying. I don't think Jim Cameron worries about too much. To be quite honest, I don't think Jim Cameron worries about too much. And let's be honest, I'm not really worried about Jim Cameron. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> he's he's doing fine. He's he's fine. He's, he'll be all right. Yeah, he he is. Okay. The kids he are just, all right. He's going to make it after all, I think, to quote Laverne and Shirley. Um, which we should do once a show. We really should start doing that. I think, like, but a carpenter between like Laurie Strode and Adrian Barbeau's role in the fog. And here is like Maggie, like he creates these like very three dimensional women that you're not seeing in other aspects of like horror and science fiction at this time. And they all have their own, they're, they're all different from one another. There's like no, through line that necessarily connects them and with Bar- Adrian Barbeau's Maggie here you're getting kind of the prototype for what like a Ripley would become later on like this really strong character she obviously is very loyal to the brain here and she gets this very touching send-off and this very like out of all and there's out of all like the death character deaths in the movie like I think hers is the most affecting because she's like lost my partner and it's much more important for me to get revenge than survive at this point i mean i I don't love like the the why of the things that she does uh you know throughout the film but what i do like about maggie is that everything that she does is by her choice like she is not, you know, being, you know, like, uh, you know, forced or drug along or like, you know, pressure. Like everything that she does is like her choice. So like, I do uh, enjoy her agency uh, of 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 the film. Uh, I I do wish that just at, at that point of like, if the brain was dead, I'd be like, ah, uh, you know what? I'm gonna just continue to go do what I was gonna do because like, I mean, there was no kind of guarantee if like, you know, Maggie or Brain were gonna also like get, you know, some sort of benefit out of helping in the situation. So like, uh, I, I I do uh, appreciate her her love for a brain, but also I was just like, you know what? I, I still would have wished that she just would have just been like, you know what? Eh, fuck all you guys. Like Snake, figure it out on your own. I'm gonna just go do this now. <laughs> like I don't know. Yeah, I do wonder about the influence of the women around him, because like even you think of like Big Trouble in Little China too, like Gracie Laws, like she is a very strong character like half the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like the other half you know she's very like she needs to be rescued yes and there's 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 some there's some things about that character I, that i love you know she's like very determined like i'm gracie law we're gonna go in and we're gonna save this and you know there's that part of it but then there's also like some weird things that yeah. are kind of disconnect all, with that for me but um all the damn shit movie's... in the back half yeah but that yeah. movie's a spoof. I mean, I, I look at Big Trouble no, as totally. like a spoof of, of that kind of... I'm, I'm just saying, I think that, you know, this is Adrian Barbeau. Like, this is his wife at the time. Like, I would be curious to know how much of it, like, how much input she had. And mm-hmm. was like, 
you know, how much control agency she had over this character, if she was just strictly reciting lines or if she was like, no, I want to be this kind of character. Mm -hmm. And like, same thing. Like, I know that like Deborah Hill was like really involved with developing Laurie Strode's character. Mm -hmm. So I just am a little like, yes, they're his movies, but I am not fully confident in putting the development of these no. strong female characters fully on Carpenter. And, and I that's think it, why I say he like co-created like especially with like Deborah Hill like it's yeah. no I don't think it's any coincidence that these are the strongest like females he writes like during this time period but even then it's like still him saying like yeah let's run with this like this looks really good like it would have been just as easy to say like no we're gonna make this more the traditional like she needs to be rescue type of character he definitely wrote maggie the part for barbo like they were married at the time and he definitely wrote the role with her in mind i think famously it would be like a year later he would tell George Romero, like, if you need a Billy character, like, I've got the perfect person for that role, which kind of lets you know where his mind was at, like, a year later when you think of Billy in Creepshow, mm-hmm. uh, a.k.a. a real one, lover, no notes. <laughs> Steven, you were saying. I, I, I think the as, – as you look at his filmography, the – it, the the strong female leads tend to be very front heavy in his filmography, so I, I think there is something to the the idea that these women are influencing him in a lot of ways, because I think Big Trouble in Little China is one of the last very strong female characters that you get. Um, he he tries it in Ghost of Mars, but I'm not sure how successful it is in Ghost not of Mars with, with Natasha Henstridge, and then again in The Ward with Amber Heard, um, but again not. And that that whole movie is is mostly mostly women, but again, none of them feel they they all feel like well, I'm a strong female character. That none of them feel as actualized as a lot of those early female leads that he or those female characters rather because mm-hmm. uh, Maggie's not a lead, but you understand what I'm saying. Like yeah. they they don't feel as strong. So I think there is something to that. And again, it's the influence of these strong women mm-hmm. in the in their relationships with these more powerful, more famous men that tends to go unsaid and unstated and um mm. i don't know normalized talking about the women who prop up these guys yeah yeah agreed that makes a lot of i agree with that um let's talk about the action and then one more thing before we head out of here i would say that this is a great action movie despite the action of this movie being a bit wonky like it definitely doesn't it's definitely pre Stallone and Schwarzenegger coming in and defining what an action movie is going to look like for the next decade. Yeah. Russell talks about kind of like trimming up and getting a little bit more muscular and you can see he looks great. I mean, he spends half the movie with his shirt off, but the action scenes themselves are a little bit kludgy. Uh, even like the Russell like sh- firing his guns in this movie, it just looks a little bit like there's nothing like, like when you actually see Pliskin in action. There's not pew, a lot. Of- yes, yeah. <laughs> Feels very stormtrooper like. Yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot that screams like elite 
elite combat veteran when you actually see him like running through the chaka nuts for example or fighting the henchmen at the train sequence right yeah it's a it's a little stiff it's a little on the stiff side for sure and like even certain scenes where it's like uh i it maybe i got such a big laugh out of uh, like when he shoots the wall and has to like break down through it even Mm -hmm. just that little bit is like so kind of goofy in a way um you know the the action yeah because i think because one thing that uh, kind of takes the movie down for me is the pacing a little bit. Like I do really like the the bridge scene at the end with like the mines and the you know car and everything. Like that's super fun. And like um, uh, the the you know fight with the the guy in the ring is like you know the death match. Like that's fun. But like the little action scenes that we like kind of get throughout the middle are really just to, like kind of keep us interested until the end. You know, like the the kind of shootouts and like things like that. Like I kind of. Uh, wanted a little bit more um, to kind of feel a little bit more of the threat of of the area you know that snake had to do to like kind of do this like um you know like until we actually like get to the duke's place and stuff like everything up to that is like yeah he's he's not really doing anything like you said like nothing too actiony but like not also like you know like he's not like showing these like expert tracking skills he has or anything like that like nothing no uh, i i could have done with a little bit more especially just because of the the scale of this city that we Mm -hmm. have you know so i feel like we kind of gotten a a little bit more uh energy to it and Go ahead, Stephen. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think the evolution of the the action movie is is a very because this is very much this has more in common with what an action movie was in the seventies, more the mm-hmm. the Death Wish style of of action. Because you're a year away from First Blood, you're three years away from the Terminator. Like the the guys who are like at this point, Stallone is just Rocky. Uh, he's he's the galoot with the with the gloves. Like that's that's what he he's not sly. Did he so, done Rhinestone yet? Um, no, Rhinestone's eighty four. Okay. Rhinestone's the Not same year as Terminator. Okay. Yeah, so, I get those two movies confused a lot. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'll stop sabotaging my show now. Continue. <laughs> oh, you're good, man. Um, but I mean, so just the evolution of that, and then how that changes then in the late eighties when you get fucking bruce willis as john mcclane like where you start to steer it and kurt russell making his comeback (laughs) right and and so like just the evolution of of where that goes and how it kind of curves back in on itself toward the end we're going to take all the lessons we learned about you know the the size of the explosions from the 80s but we're going to start sticking in like some everyman looking people and now we we kind of swing back to that now where no one looks like an everyman anymore. Everyone just looks, you know, completely jacked and beautiful in movies. Now uh, you don't get like the, the, you know, the rugged faced people. Like you, you would never see anyone that looks like Charles Bronson in a movie these days. There you right. do. Liam Neeson. I, okay. But he's like, Liam he's Neeson been around forever. Like there's mm. no like up and comers that look like Liam Neeson. Not, uh, okay. Correct. Yeah. But like the movies that Liam Neeson has been cranking out for the last they, ten years, they tried are with very uh, Charles Bronson. They tried with Bob Odenkirk too, with uh, with that Nobody movie. I think That's was true. like the like most recent of of trying to do that. Yeah, Liam but, Neeson yeah. and Charles Bronson are not like Charles Bronson looks like he just like got out of the factory, you know, and like put down the lunch pail, took off the overalls, and then. Went on a set like Liam Neeson. Like someone is, uh, backed over his face a couple times. Yeah. yeah. Hey, whoa. <laughs> In know. the best possible way. 
Like you're not get like you're not going to get a Simpsons joke about like a town full of Bronsons with like Liam Neeson. You know what? You're not going to have like a baby Liam Neeson. <laughs> like you got the Irish accent. I don't know. I get what ah, you're saying. Uh, what a cookie! Like in, I get what you're saying. Like an unlikely action hero. Um, well, and just like you know, he's not like su- like he's like you know in shape, but he's not like ripped. You sure. Know? Like he looks like honestly just like a normal kind of dude like he's, attract- he's attractive yes but like mm-hmm. to me he doesn't read action star got it and he and there's he makes a lot of revenge films <laughs> he does he does that's like it pretty much his bread and butter these days mm-hmm. yeah. he's working through some stuff as well he he's, he's been fine. he's been working through some stuff for a he, few years he actually yeah. is i mean so i won't he, make any joke there because no, he, he actually he legit we'll move is, on yeah. we'll move on move on let's talk isaac case uh before we talk the score and wrap things up because i don't think we can talk this movie without just saying how great he is as the duke it's a very understated performance he has this amazing charisma to me it very much feels like the aesthetic of this movie and when duke enters the picture it kind of feels like an offshoot of the warriors like walter hills the warriors from a few years before and you can totally understand like the way hayes is able to command the screen in this movie while you would get an island full of like really dangerous violent convicts to Mm -hmm. fall in line behind him without him having to do all that much yeah yeah yeah, no. he he definitely has that um that 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 coolness, of course. I mean, because he's fucking Isaac Hayes, um, correct. And, and yeah, it, it, the it gives kind of shades of of the Warriors, like definitely like of like um, you know, like they like he's trying to govern this like kind of lawless uh area now, you know. And um, it, not only does this give me shades of the Warriors, there's a movie that came out like a uh, uh, back in like 2016 called The Bad Batch that kind of also does a similar mm-hmm. uh, dystopian thing, except they kind of go on like the other angle. It's like, oh, instead of everybody like, you know, just like fighting and being trashy all the time, they're just like doing a bunch of drugs and stuff. And like, yeah. I feel like they kind of go for and they like kind of push the. Uh, the the coolness of it uh, to a different degree, but like um, but yeah, but Isaac Hayes is the Duke. Like I think he's just great. He uh, is like a perfect, uh, you know, antithesis to Snake, and that they neither one of them care about each other. You know, they're not connected in any way. But again, they are at these oppositions just because of the situation, the circumstances that they're in. And like on any other terms, it's like they probably have similar ideologies, you know, most likely, but they don't know that because, you know, just again, because of the situation of the film. Uh, so so they work uh, in that way pretty fascinatingly. Now. Rachel, where does this rank amongst Carpenter scores? I mean, I think it's great. I think it's I mean, Obviously, he's got a lot of great ones, but what I like about this one in particular, I mean, it's very moody. It is like a great counter for this world that we're seeing. It's very stark and kind of the coldness that we get from those electronic elements, I think, really fits this world. Like, obviously, Mm -hmm. Halloween is like iconic, of course, and like changed horror scores forever in a lot of ways. But, you know, this world, I think that sort of those electronics fits better. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just really simple, but also like 
there's a lot of diversity in the actual sounds that we get and the actual melodies that we get. It's not as repetitive as some of his his other scores can be sometimes. There is some like like when the Duke shows up, you know, the tr- the music that's playing, it's got a little bit of a groove to mm-hmm. it and it feels almost like hopeful to me. I think it's mm-hmm. the way the intervals that he's using and the melodies, like the major chords and like the upward motion of some of those things, like it it's not quite as spooky as some of the no. other ones. So it's it's a really fun listen, like on yeah. its own, like even separated from the movie itself. Like it's got some fun moments where you're kind of yeah. like groove into it and stuff and it's got some energy, I think. So I I mean He's got a lot of good ones, so it's like hard to pick, you know, like rank them or anything like that. But I think this is in my, I'd say, if, you know, top top half of mm-hmm. his scores for me for sure. Yeah, there are like shades of it that I thought like kind of like in a couple years like Ennio Morricone is gonna pull almost elements out of it for the thing, like that kind of repetitive like two note mm-hmm. bass beat when there was like a really tense moment. The main theme itself almost had like an episodic feel to it. Like, okay, you're just watching like one of Snake Plissken's adventures, mm. but tune yeah. in next tune in next week and see what jam like click if him and Hulk actually hooked up at the end of the movie and like they did form that team together that like Lee Van Cleef is saying we should form. Like you could see the main score of this being like the main titles of like a television show or the continuing totally. adventures of like yeah. very much had that. So much more like you said of a laid back feel to it than something that's really propulsive. And I think that fits the character of Snake really well. He's not necessarily a take charge guy. He's very much of like do what needs to be done type of guy. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And All the right. character is just built for a franchise. Like mm-hmm. then that he never got one is okay. really kind of a travesty. Yeah. I really like the the uh, hopefulness that you said to it because like for a minute I was listening to this, I was like, I really like the score, but it almost seems like it doesn't fit. But then now I guess now that I think about it, I was like, I don't know, this that might be like the the little bit of uh, optimism from Carpenter being like, you know, like as cynical as I am, I'm not, you know, completely, you know, devoid of hope uh, in, in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of uh, what I got from it's, it. It's like a dark hope because it's like when, you know, he's destroying the tape at the end. It's like sometimes you just got to burn it all down so that you can like rebuild it, from, you know, from the ground up. And I think mm-hmm. that they're like, yes, it's like bleak and like stark in that re- realness. But I think that there is like a weird, odd hopefulness there. Yeah. And it's I I love that juxtaposition of ideas, and I think that the music really helped. Mm-hmm. If it was like really heavy and dark the whole time, this movie would be a total bummer, you know. Mm. And so by like av- adding that levity in those moments with the music, I think is crucial to really executing the tone of the film and not making yeah. it just feel like depressing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and that's pretty much how Escape from L.A. ends as well. Just burn it all down. Yep. Like that's start over. The, that's kind of the the Pliskin motto. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the human race. Welcome Be the, the change race, so. you wish to see in the world, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts? Great movie. A+. Yeah, great movie. Should have been a franchise. Uh, I would love to see as a continuation of this franchise. Um, I, I think Carpenter, he's kind of said he's retired from filmmaking, and I, I want that for him. I want him to remain retired. But he also loves video games, and I would love to see a snake Plissken video game directed by John Carpenter 
or at least with plotted written by John Carpenter where maybe like a escape from uh, Las Vegas where you mm-hmm. get and you bring Russell back to voice Pliskin, you put him in another like hollowed out American city and you, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like, but no. I think that I think the video game and just make it kind of an open world sort of game where you're like a, like a grand theft auto or something, not obviously in terms of gameplay, but just in terms of the open world of it all. I love that idea. I love that notion. And I think that would be a really fun way to, to continue this, this franchise and in a way that would make sure that both Russell and Carpenter continue to get paid and continue to play in the sandbox mm-hmm. that they seem to clearly like. Is that your pitch? Is that that's what my, you would do? That's my pitch. Absolutely. That's how I continue this franchise. What if we uh, tweak that a little bit? What do you got? You, you do an AI generated John Candy. <laughs> nope. And you what? do a escape from Sheboygan. Stop it. And the po- Polka King needs to escape his fans from Sheboygan. You, you ruined it. <laughs> that's what's going to go on my tombstone one day. <laughs> escape from Sheboygan? No, you ruined it. It's oh. going to be. <laughs> All right, let's talk about other things are ruining right now. Now, now that just sounds mean. I was like, wait, what? what? He's getting ready to do let's, pitches. Or, uh, yeah, let's, we're yeah. going to do pitches. Is that plugs? Is that what it is? Yeah, the plugs, yeah so. plugs. That's what it is, yeah. So, Stephen, what is going on with the Disenfranchise show? Uh, I mean, if you ask my co-host, we are ruining it right now because we are in our 80s animation month right now where we're talking about um, – uh, a bunch of uh, 80s animated films based on 80s television shows that didn't get sequels so it's we've done transformers uh the movie we're getting ready to do my little pony the movie um Ooh. yeah we've also got um uh gi joe the movie and then we're finishing out the month with the chipmunk adventure so no. just a lot of 80s marketing cynicism just in the air yeah. and baked into the cake so uh, one of my co-hosts is, has prote- protested loudly pretty much the entire time. He's, he's not into it, but what are you going to do? Why? Um, because of... He uh, hates fun. No, he he hates just the the insidious nature of the, the deregulation of uh, mm-hmm. marketing such that kids can be marketed to through mm-hmm. basically TV and movies. Because yeah. Transformers the movie is just a giant exercise in cynicism. It's rolling out the new product line for children it, it's fucking bleak it it's ruined bleak children like optimus yeah. prime dying just ruined well, so many children no one thought of them as characters except for the guy who wrote the movie who's like please don't do this please and they're mm-hmm. like no no no, it's fine we, we're, we're bringing in ultra magnus it's gonna be fine mm-hmm. no one fucking cares about ultra magnus they want fine. optimus prime um, what's going and where can we find y'all uh, we are on uh, – I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, at Chewy Walrus. You can find uh, the entire disenfranchised everything on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, YouTube, and Patreon at DisenfranchPod. Excellent. Devon, what's going on as we kick off year four with the Spectre Cinema Club? Yeah, so right now we are in our uh, annual Pride Month coverage. Uh, this year doing a celebration of camp. Uh, which is uh, super fun because these are very fun movies, but also camp as a concept is uh, quite the enigma and trying to uh, figure it out has been uh, super fun. So you can uh, definitely uh, check us out uh, on all podcast platforms uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Spectre Cinema. And then you can find me at uh, Twitter, Instagram and Letterboxd at underscore Daddy Disco. Excellent. 
Rachel, you always have a million projects going on. What's up <laughs> with the Losers Club and Girls on the Boys? And what articles are we working on? Yeah, Losers Club, chugging away. Lots of fun stuff coming up this next month. Next month and um so stay tuned there and they just did a bunch of boogeyman coverage yeah. so if you've interested in anything related to boogeyman there's a lot of great stuff a really fun really sweet interview with rob savage oh. um that was really great uh, girls on the boys jen and i just wrapped up season one of the boys so we're gonna do um a like a recap episode just kind of some thoughts about the whole first season overall and Randall Colburn from the Losers Club will be joining us for that one because um, he's a big fan of that show to kind of get his, give his thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. And then writing wise, yeah, I'll have some stuff coming out for Pride Month um, over at Dread Central and I will be, of course, tweeting those out and mm-hmm. sharing those on the socials so you can follow me at Vinyl Girl, G-R-R-R-L on Twitter or the Vinyl Girl on Instagram and so you'll You'll be able to find yeah. all of that good stuff there. <laughs> Just wanted to say at the Losers Club, Dan McCaffrey, one of the co-hosts, wrote a short audio drama for the yes. Boogeyman, like a, a kind of side quill. I think that that um, I forget what studio put out the Boogeyman. Is it Fox? I forget. But who they were commissioned no. a bunch of pods to to do so. And McCaffrey's like thirty minute little audio drama is. And I thought the boogeyman was just fine. Like a three star was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Better, much more interesting and something that I would love to have seen expanded to like a full length feature. Like McCaffrey is a really phenomenal storyteller. And I would, oh, yeah. if you haven't listened to it, listeners, go check that out. And yes. it's well, do it with the lights out. I listened to it driving through like a, a thunderstorm and it was just like great spooky vibes. So yeah, highly yeah, encouraged. Dan's a great writer, especially yeah. like he is a playwright. So like writing yeah. for that medium and Ashley's got a fabulous voice mm-hmm. for those kind of things. So yeah, the yeah. whole thing was really fun and amazing. It's really excellent. Uh, you can find me here, the part of the pendulum. You can find me Mike underscore Snoonian on Twitter, Mike underscore Snoonian on Instagram and at Mike Chump Change on Letterbox. And I think just Mike Snoonian over on Blueski, all one word. I need to start using that more in Twitter less. Follow us at the Pod and the Pendulum over on Twitter. Visit our site, podandthependulum.com, or all of our shows are posted. Um, go ahead and become a patron. We actually are putting stuff up again. Steven and I were joined by Taffeta of late. Uh, and by the time this show goes up, the uh, bonus show will either be posted or just be like a day away with the final edit. But we did... Uh, the Friends of Eddie Coyle for about two and a half hours. And okay. it was such a great conversation to have, like really enjoyed. I mean, talk about like hard boiled movies. Um, <laughs> that's up on the going to be up on the patron at patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. So go there for some bonus content. That episode is kind of a trial balloon for a project that will be launching later this summer so stay tuned for that and if you haven't already please take a moment go over to wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you rate review and subscribe to the show uh, i was saying this when we were recording the eddie coyle show how uh we've just passed four years the numbers continue to grow our first Hell House episode was like 
the second fastest we've hit like a certain number behind like the new Scream movie and Halloween ends. And I think that's less about Hell House and more about just the fact that, which is a great movie, don't get me wrong, I love the original Hell House, Devon's hatred of it aside. Um, well documented, well documented. Well documented, <laughs> but like we really enjoy the new influx of listeners that we've had and want to see this continue to grow. Um, thank you so much. We will be back uh, continuing our coverage of John Carpenter June with The Fog that should be coming next week. We have one more Carpenter movie after that. One more, I think we were going to do four, but I think we're a week behind. We're going to save one for a date to be named later. Uh, And then we're going to be dipping our toes in the water of Jaws. And I've already started my notes for that. And it's a month away. Oh, dear. Stay tuned. Pack a lunch. We'll be back next week, however, with The Fog.